Emmanuel Baptist Church. This is Matt and Shelby Meyer, and this is our six-month-old son, Ford, and our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Millie, is sleeping. Um, we are serving in Krakow, Poland, have been for almost six years now, and so Matt is going to share a little bit about our ministries and how you can be praying. Like Shelby said, we've been here for just almost six years now, and we are currently the team leaders for the Southeast Poland team. Um, that adds a lot of different responsibilities to our role, but uh, specifically we have 10 families on our team, which we are an honor. We have the honor of being able to lead them. And so that is a big part of our personal ministry is equipping and encouraging our, our team members so that they can further advance the gospel here in Krakow. Um, we are doing a lot of different things within the city, English ministries, student ministries, church planting, sports ministries. Um, and so there's a lot to, to give in just a, a short little video. So we uh, plan to keep communicating what those prayer needs are. Um, we just wanted to say how thankful we are for your guys' prayers, for your support, for the way you have come alongside of us in the past, and we look forward to how the Lord is going to use this partnership for the advancements for His kingdom here in Poland in the future. We thank you guys, and uh, we, we appreciate your prayers. In 2023, there'll be an opportunity to go to Poland and uh, partner with the Meyer family. And so if that piques your interest, pay attention. We'll be getting out information uh, about that after we turn the new year. Also, I believe Caitlin, who's our, uh, is that where you're headed? To work with the Meyer family? Caitlin's our student ministry intern in January. She's going over there. Five months? Three months. Sorry, I was giving you two more months. So we want to pray for her. Just a real unique opportunity that we have there. I'm grateful for the Meyer family. They, they live a life in response to God's grace by serving the Lord on the mission field. That's what we'll talk about in our text today, about how we live in light of God's grace. But I also want to say that it's people like the Meyer family that the Lottie Moon Christmas offering helps support. And so next Sunday, uh, we'll begin collecting money for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And here's what that is. Uh, it's an offering that 100% of those proceeds go to minister to those on the field. And so our goal, our church has a goal of $55,000. And um, here's what I'm asking you to do as a church, as, as members of the church. Will you prayerfully consider what you and your family could give towards the Lottie Moon offering above and beyond your regular tithes and offerings? And uh, pray about that between now and December 18th. And on December 18th, we'll actually have a special time where we'll bring those offerings and pray uh, for their impact as they will leave this place and go minister to those and be used by those who are serving all over the world. And so I want to make your attention to that. I also want to do this because I'm going to forget. But if you have, a, how many kids are in the room? Raise your hand. Good. The hula day party is, on, is coming up. It's the first Friday of December. If you notice in the bulletin, it says it's from like four to 10. That is not true. <laughs> I know that some of you parents were like, yes. It's from six to nine, so I'm just making sure that is correctly put out there for you, okay? I am, uh, we're gonna look at verses 11 through 15 of Titus chapter two, and some might ask, why are we gonna skip the first 10 verses of chapter two? And here's why. Um, two reasons. One, I wrote, uh, my doctoral work was on intergenerational relationships within the church, and this was a main uh, text for me. And so I have a lot to say about it. And so I did not want to try to merge that in with 11 through 15 in one sermon. 
I'm also going to preach in 2023 a series on relationships, and this text will actually serve as a part of, uh, of, that, of that sermon series. So it'll come back. We'll, you're going to think to yourself, we didn't complete the letter of Titus when we went through it, but no, we will. It just might take a little bit into 2023 before we do that. I'm a, I'm a baseball fan, not as passionate as some other staff members are about baseball, and, uh, but I, I do like to watch baseball occasionally. Uh, I root for the Red Sox. I don't know how I became a Red Sox fan other than I became a Red Sox fan before they broke the curse, okay? And so uh, I want that to be very clear. I wasn't a bandwagon fan that jumped on. But I'm gonna tell you an illustration that really has nothing to do with base, with nothing to do with the Red Sox or the Cardinals or any baseball team. It actually has something to do with Taco Bell. It was a World Series, game three, Red Sox, Cardinals, and at Bush Stadium, Taco Bell um, had made this plan that they were gonna build a 12-foot by 12-foot uh, sign, put it underneath the scoreboard at Bush Stadium, about 420 feet from Hutton Plate. And they were gonna give free tacos to all of America if they hit the home run uh, and it hit the sign, anywhere on the sign. They, everybody in America would do that. Well, then they started to panic just a little bit. So then they set up some additional requirements. They basically uh, set up this idea that if this actually happens, you can only get the tacos from Taco Bell during a three-hour window on a specific day in November. They became so worried that this was going to happen. There was about a 25% chance that a ball would hit that sign. They became so worried that they actually purchased an insurance policy in case they had to cover the cost of that many free tacos. Though there were a couple of home runs in game three, you and I, if we can remember or paid attention, none of them hit that sign. Therefore, Taco Bell did not have to provide free tacos for Americans. But here's why I tell you that. Jesus knows that no one can ever hit the target of perfect holiness. And he doesn't tempt us by offering further restrictions on the gift of eternal life. Instead, he paid the full price to make his gift of grace available to everyone. And that's what we're going to look at in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And so if you have your text, let's read it together. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. As I stated, Paul gave some instructions at the first part of chapter 2 about the idea of sound doctrine and the relationships that existed within the various groups within the church, older men, younger men, and all these kind of things. And the reason why um, he gave these instructions is because the idea of sound doctrine was available for all people in the church, from the older men to the younger men to the older women to the younger women to the slaves to the masters, that this sound teaching was available. And so 
we might ask the question, why did Paul give all those instructions about sound doctrine and sound teaching with those various groups? And the reason can be found in verse 11, and that's signified by the, the word for. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That the reason why there's a need for sound doctrine and why this is happening is for the very things that Paul lays out here in these verses that we're going to look at today. And so let's talk about how the belief in the grace of God and the, and, and the receiving of it in our life, how it affects our behavior, because belief and behavior are woven all throughout this particular text. And so let's first talk about this grace that appeared. This grace is the unmerited divine favor of God. Grace is a personal action by a personal God, meaning this, that it is unmerited and by his own choice, he walks into your life and picks you up and extends his grace to you, not because of anything you've done or who you are or anything like that. And I, the best way I can think about it is, is this, that you are dead in your transpasses and sins. Like you are, um, you are in the filth of the sinful world. And just think about this filth like a a nasty, dirty river, ditch, whatever you want to call, where the filth is passing by and you are basically on your way to your eternal death. And God, because he's a personal God, stepped down into that nastiness that you are in, the death that you're in, and he picks you up out of it. Getting himself dirty and filthy, not concerned with that, but concerned with you and picking you up and bringing you to a new place and washing you off and cleansing you from it. This is what grace looks like for me. Now, this is what God does for us, that when it says that the grace of God has appeared, that it came in the person of Jesus Christ, that he left the right hand of the Father and took on human flesh and walked where we walked, experienced what we experienced, taking on our sin, our filth, and dying in our place. This is the grace of God that has appeared to us. And the grace of God should make you fall so in love with God that you cannot stand the things that offend him. God's grace literally should make us intolerant of the things of this world, the evil that exists within it. And this grace appears bringing salvation for all people. Now, Paul is not telling us that all people will be saved. But what he is saying is this, there once was a time that, that this grace was unknown, okay? But God made this grace known through the appearing of Jesus Christ. And when he made this grace known that his work on the cross, Christ's work on the cross makes it possible for all men to be saved. And what do you mean by that? Here's what it means. That every sin of every person in this room and in this world has an answer in Jesus. No people, nation, or person is excluded from, the, from Christ's work on the cross. As Danny Aiken would put it, <clears throat> those who perish in the horrors of hell must walk over a bloodstained cross that bears their name. This is the grace of God that has been extended to all people, bringing salvation to all people. Not that all will be saved, but that all have the possibility of being saved. And the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructs us or trains us as we see at the beginning of verse 12. Listen, there's something about when you experience God's grace that you become aware of your own 
unholiness, right? Your own sinfulness. In fact, when we think about Isaiah, when he stood in, in the presence of God, his reaction when he saw God in his fullness was, woe is me, a sinful man. When Moses encountered God there in the burning bush, he hid his face because this is what grace does is it instructs us of our current state, right? And then by placing our faith and trust in Jesus and receiving that grace, his grace begins to instruct us on a new way of living. And that is why um, I, I came up with five responses to God's grace that we can say uh, that we can do and practice in our own lives. And number, number one is this, we deny ungodliness and worldly passions. If you're reading in verse 12 of the text, it says, training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce or to deny, it's this idea of saying no. Now listen, I've been, I've been rescued from this, so I'm gonna say no to these things because I do not wanna go back there. I've, you know, I've had at times met people that maybe were, were saved and, and brought out of addiction or, or very difficult and broken situations. And I've never met anybody who said, I really hope I can go back to that. Because once they were rescued from it, they, they didn't want anything to go to do with that again. They, and that doesn't mean that there wasn't struggles or that there wasn't other things that happened, but inside of them, there was not a desire to get back in it. I, I think about it this way. If, it's a, if you're playing in the mud and then you clean yourself up, right? because you're gonna go somewhere and you know, go out on a date or whatever, you don't necessarily wanna go back and get muddy again before you do that. Yet in our spiritual life, this is oftentimes what happens. And the reason why we need to understand what God's grace and how it instructs us is, is because we have been rescued from sin. So why do we want to continue to walk in sin? Why do we wanna pursue our worldly passions and our lust and cravings of our flesh? And what, what we understand is, is that to live in light of God's grace, we need to deny or to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is the opposite of godly. It is external actions that betray God. It is inward thinking of a lack of disregard or, total, or sorry, a total disregard of who God is and his work in our life. Worldly passions, I said, are internal impulses, lust, desires, and cravings for things of this world. When you don't deny the worldly passions, you're showing a lack of restraint. In fact, Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell in their commentary on Titus, they said the indulgence of ungodliness and worldly passions ultimately is a denial of the word of God and the message of the Savior. If our lives exhibit no freedom from the passions of this world, then our lives implicitly say that the gospel makes no difference. When we receive the grace of God, that it's shown in the person of Jesus Christ and his work and we receive it, if it doesn't change our life to where we say no to ungodliness and we say no to worldly passions, if, we, if it doesn't change us, it communicates that the gospel does not transform and is not powerful. And we have a responsibility in light and in response to God's grace to deny these things. And the second thing is, is as we see continuing in the text, is that then we live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Let me just go ahead and explain that this present age refers to, the, it, it is the time between the appearing 
of grace, which is in the person of Jesus Christ, and his return, which we'll, we'll read about in just another verse or two. And so it's in between these two times that the second coming of Christ and his initial coming and the appearing of grace. This present age is in between here. And we're, we're to live a life denying ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And to be self-controlled is this inward thing inside of us. To be self-controlled is a control of the passions. We're able to constrain our own desires, not letting them take over. This is, in, this is a positive statement to the negative statement of deny, right, worldly passions. The, listen, the way that you deny worldly passions is, is you practice self-control. Upright, uprightness, it is righteous conduct. This is an outward thing. This is how you and I interact, that I'll live upright and choose to treat you right and show kindness and, and the righteous conduct in our interactions. This is the positive statement to the negative statement of godliness. And listen, if the list stopped right there, you and I could take a lot of credit for how we live our life. Because we are able to be self-controlled at times. We can get control of our desires and emotions. We are able to live upright and have righteous conduct or so far, so conduct that is good between each other. Think about the people that we know who, know who don't even know Jesus, but we describe them as a great man or a wonderful woman. That they're kind and caring in the way that they deal with each other. And listen, if the list stopped right there, then what we might find ourselves is, is that there's a standard that we can meet and then we receive God's grace. But the third word is important and it's this, that we are to live not just self-controlled upright, but godly lives as well. And listen, godliness is a relationship with God that results in a life honoring God. Meaning this, there is no godliness apart from God. You have to have a relationship with God God in order to practice godliness. And godliness is so dependent upon God that without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we would always rationalize sin and walk in the pathway of sin. But as we experience God's grace, we too can grow in affection for God because of his grace, and we will grow intolerant of anything that distracts us from him. Now I'll ask this question. What's distracting you from pursuing godliness. That as you walk faithfully with the Lord, what is it that is, bring, that is a distraction to you that's keeping you from it? The grace needed to produce this godliness is a costly grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would describe it this way, that such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it cost a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for you and I. Listen, in response to God's grace, we've got to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. We've got to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then the third thing, as we continue reading in the text, we wait for our blessed hope. Listen, this blessed hope 
We're to honor God with our lives in this present age, and we're waiting with this expectation. Waiting and hope, this idea of wait and hope are essential to our Christian faith. And what I mean by that, it's this. Waiting speaks of an eager and confident expectation that what Jesus says he's going to do, that he's going to return, is going to happen. And here's what waiting does in our life. It produces character, it produces endurance, and it produces perseverance. You and I can all probably recall moments where like somebody made us wait for something. And the, purpose, the reason why they made us wait was they were trying to develop our character, our endurance, and perseverance. And uh, I, I know this, for me, sometimes I'm in situations where I don't like to wait. I mean, think about it. There used to be a time that you had to call on a landline to order food from a restaurant, right? And you had to wait for it. And then you would either, you would drive down and pick it up from the restaurant, actually have to walk in and pay for it. Now, we don't even like to wait that if we pull up to Chick-fil-A and we pull into the curb, the curbside thing, and it takes more than two minutes to get our food, we're like, what's the deal? I've already ordered it. And we've, lo- we've forgotten the ability of what it's like to wait. Listen, wait is good for us as believers because it builds inside of us character and endurance and perseverance. And as, as Paul's instructing Timothy, listen, we're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. And while you're waiting, it's good for you to wait because these are the things that'll be established. And hope, this blessed hope. Listen, our hope is in a person and his name is Jesus. And church, this should give you great certainty that Jesus, who we've already, who we know has already lived, died and come back to life and is sitting at the right hand of the father waiting to return. That we, this is already a certainty that he's coming back. And listen, when he comes back, he's gonna return. The, the, the dead in Christ are gonna be resurrected. The living Uh, who are faithful are gonna be joined with Christ. All of us together are gonna be joined and live in eternity with him. This is the hope we have. It's in Jesus and what he's going to do and how we'll spend eternity with him. But listen, hope makes waiting bearable. Why? Because in response to God's grace in my life, I can deny ungodliness and I can pursue godliness And then I can wait and live my life with hope. Why? Because this hope is gonna see it come all the way through. And the person that we hope in is in Jesus Christ, which we see as we continue to read this text, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, the appearing of Jesus Christ creates a sense of expectancy in the hearts of believers that encourages them to live faithful lives in what they will do each day. And the same should be true for you and I. This world and offers so many attractions that are bright and shiny and look promising and fulfilling. And many of the things that we pursue in this world are good. But church, let's stop chasing the bright lights of the world today at the expense of the treasures to come in heaven. The things that matter are eternal things. And while we do have fleshly things on this earth that matter, at the end of the day, the things that matter most are what we will experience for eternity. And we have got to live our lives waiting for the blessed hope, living our life in the way of response to God's grace that that Paul's laid out for Titus and the believers here in Crete is that we will deny ungodliness, we will pursue godliness and we will wait with this hope of what's to come. 
And it takes me to the fourth thing because we know who's coming. And so when you respond to God's grace, you know who your Lord and Savior is. Or as I would say, we know who our Lord is. And it's described in verse 14. That he gave himself for us. This speaks of Christ dying in your place. It speaks to this substitutionary death where he took on, he lived a life that you couldn't live and died the death that you should have died. That's the best phrase to put it this way. And because of your sinfulness and his selfless sacrifice, he was able to redeem us. And the word redeem means to release upon the receipt of a ransom. Jesus was our ransom. In fact, you could even translate the word who gave himself for, that that for us. You could actually translate it to be in place of, who gave himself in place of us, right? That he laid down his life for us. This is your savior. Listen, you should never get over the fact as a believer that Christ took your place and took your punishment. I'm gonna let that set for just a minute. We should never get over the fact that God reached down into the pig pen of our filthy sinful life and picked us up because he loves us and he cares for us. And he puts us in a new place and he redeems us. And if this doesn't motivate or change us every day of our life, then I'm I'm wondering if you've ever experienced that grace. Because this is the grace that motivates us that says, I don't ever want to do the things that dishonor God or are displeasing to God. I only want to do the things that please him because I understand where he rescued me from. And there are people in this room that you are dead right now in your your trespasses and sins. And God, by his mercy and grace, is calling out to you today to say, I'm here. I'm ready to pick you up if you will trust in me as your Savior and Lord. And you will experience what it's like to be redeemed. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And not only did he redeem us, as the text tells us, he purifies us for himself. Listen, his blood cleanses us. You are washed as white as snow. You are purified so that you might live a godly life. That he no longer sees you covered by sin, but he sees you covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what he does, that you can know who your savior is. He loves you, he redeems you, he purifies you. And it takes us to the next one, which is then we begin to realize who our identity is. In light of God's grace, in response to God's grace, we realize who we are, and we see that at the end of verse 14. That we become a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, God had every right to cast us off and put us out. When when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and he sent them out of the garden, he didn't have to do anything to redeem humanity. But by his grace, at the appearing of grace in the person of Jesus Christ, you were purchased and purified, and now he claims you as his own possession. And this is your status now, a people of his own possession. And this isn't something new that came with Jesus. 
We saw the imagery in Exodus 19.5 when he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Peter alluded to it in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 when he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Listen, God's grace reminds you and I of who we are. And when we know who we are, we have freedom. My identity is not wrapped up in being a pastor. My identity is not wrapped up in being a dad. My identity is not wrapped up in being a hard worker or an athlete or whatever it is. My identity is found that I'm a people. I'm a people. I belong to God. I'm a part of his royal family. And that is enough. And church, we should be encouraged by this and it should give us freedom to live our life in a ways that please and honor the Lord because we belong to his family. I'm reminded of Prince, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret. They often as younger, as younger people would attend parties and events and their mother would always remind them. She would always say this, royal children have royal manners. And it's a reminder that their behavior matched their status. Their status came first as a part of the royal family. Then their behavior followed it. The same is true for you and I, that when we surrender our life to Jesus and we receive his grace, that we become sons and daughters of the holy king, a part of the royal family. And as a response to that, we're to have royal manners and live in a royal way. And this is the text that we see happening here is because we are to be zealous for good works. Unlike the Cretans who were disqualified and unfit for any good works as we've learned in chapter one, those who believe in Jesus have to have a consuming desire to honor God for his work of redemption in their life, that I'm gonna do whatever I can to do good works in response to God's grace and mercy of my life. And so I conclude the message with really what, Paul tells Timothy to do. What I've just shared with you in verses 11 through 14, which he didn't have that in that time, but in the paragraph before, this is what you're to do. Declare these things. Declare them with your life and with your, and with your words. Proclaim the grace of God. Display it in your life so that people see that the gospel has the power to transform. Exhort and encourage with all authority. That by the authority given to you by God, that you would encourage each other to do and to live in response to God's grace. Listen, you in this room, I, we all need each other to encourage each other to live in response to God's grace the way that he has intended. To rebuke. Listen, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the false teachers, but listen, we gotta rebuke the teachings that are creeping in that are contradictory to what God's grace is about. And we do this with the authority that God's given us and then it takes us to the very last words. Let no one disregard you. And here's, church, what I wanna encourage you with. Don't let someone disregard the message by disregarding you as the messenger. And what I mean by that is this. Paul knew that Titus and those, those leaders and believers in Crete 
would need courage and conviction and that they would need confidence to stand firmly in who God was. And we do not let anybody disregard the work that you're doing as a believer because you need to have courage and conviction to declare the grace of God to the world around us and to display it in your life as you live it out. And so, so church, be people who live in response to God's grace. Why? Because the coming of Jesus is coming. And we want to live our life waiting for the blessed hope by doing what God has called us to do. Let's pray.